Today's guests on the Bitcoin.com news podcast are Misha Rudominski, CEO at Proven Aerospace, and Lisa Bordun, head of legal at Proven. And they are here to talk about sending NFTs into space. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Hi. Misha, why don't you get started by uh, introducing Proven to us? Um, yeah. Um, we're Proven Aerospace, uh, which I co-founded. Um, and uh, at the core of what we do, at the very basic, we're a technology company that develops rocket propulsion. But why we do that is probably always a more interesting uh, question is we want to drastically change and upgrade how we launch uh, payloads into space. All of the, the entire space industry exists based on uh, somebody launching satellites uh, to space. The entire you know, half a trillion billion, half a trillion industry exists uh, based on that. Uh, and we're kind of reaching the limits of what's currently possible with the existing rocket propulsion that we used for the last 70 years. And we as the company set a goal to explore and develop different types of propulsion that are at the core different from what we are currently using. And we want to build the rockets that are not, you know, 10% more efficient or 20% more efficient than what everybody else uh, than state of the art currently, but there are two, three, five, ten times more efficient to actually change uh, how the businesses already work in this space and allow new businesses to come in that are not there because of how prohibitive the price of launching something to space is. And yeah, we have our own technology to do that. We currently develop and validate it, uh, and we have plans uh, uh, in the next couple of years to build uh, a launch vehicle based on that. And uh, um, to launch some payloads to space and potentially some NFTs too. Can you tell us more about specifically about the, the technology that you're using? Like what mm-hmm. makes it so different than uh, other uh, options on the market? Yeah. So uh, currently, um, most of the rocket, most of the, all of the rockets that we launched to uh, space are staged. They have two is rare, but usually three, four stages for the reason that you don't want to carry passive mass. Uh, for extended periods of times when 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 you launch a rocket because it brings the efficiency down and we bring uh, bring this idea of staging to the absolute we continuously stage a rocket and what it means is that we continuously burn the rocket during the flight and it uh continuously becomes shorter and shorter and shorter not a stage you know when it burns for a minute, then first stage gets uh, disconnected and second stage burns and it gets disconnected. Uh, this happens continuously. And this way we save a lot of uh, 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 fuel uh, that we don't use to carry the passive mass. And this way it's, it, it transfers on us being capable of carrying much more payload uh, for, uh, for the same size of the rocket and the same uh, price, the absolute price of the launch. That's very interesting, but can you give us some uh, like basic explanation for people that are not uh, engineers? How, how do you exactly do that? Is, is that just having many more uh, you know modules, or is it uh, like you're burning the rocket? I, I like how is yeah. that done? That's a good question. So we we build the structure of the rocket out of the uh, polymeric fuel itself. So we use the solid fuel. And in our case, the fuel that we use has enough uh, structural integrity to actually hold and double as a structure of the rocket. So we don't need to have the outer 
metallic or uh, composite material that usually is the fuselage of the rocket. We don't need that because our fuel is what acts as that fuselage as the structure of the rocket. And then during the flight, uh, we have our engine consists of two parts. One is gasification chamber, which gasifies that solid material. And those, those gases go into combustion chamber where obviously the combustion happens and we create the thrust, which actually propels the rocket in, uh, forward. And that combustion chamber is where we feed with our mechanical feeding system. We feed the, uh, uh, the engine up on the fuel rod and, uh, you know, not not the, the simplest idea and concept to describe an audio form, but that's that's what we have. Uh, and um, yeah, oh, that engine pretty much if from from the outside, it would look at the engine is climbing up the rocket, burning it during the flight continuously. Uh, yeah, and that's that's how it works. Well, that that's very innovative. I don't think that uh, I've ever heard about something like that before. Yeah, it is. We're kind of uh, doing uh, a step back from we, we understood that what's really important that there are more than by different calculations from 100 uh, up to 200 different companies building launch vehicles in the world right now. And most of them, apart from 10 or 15 companies, pretty much use the same technology. Uh, and yeah, some of those companies are going to survive and going to you know have the most efficient rockets. But if we ever want to really drastically change, um, how 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 we can launch and what we can launch to space and for how much we can launch it to space and then you know obviously we're talking in the future interplanetary hopefully at some point interstellar travel uh, we need to dis, um, develop uh, different types we need to uh, different types of propulsion we need to take a step back and just look into different types of there's kinetic launch companies that try to like spin stuff and 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 throw it into space uh, there are companies that uh, use detonation to extract more energy from the same amount of uh, fuel, um, you know, and by combining the, in different ways, those all the alternative types of propulsion, you can actually create something that is not, as I said, as I started with, not 10% more efficient, but 10 times more efficient. And this is what actually going to bring a lot of change uh, to the industry. Can you give us some example of, um, let's say, the price point you're aiming at and what type of, uh, you know, implications Will it have for industries like who who do you plan to you know bring down the price to so the very kind of um big the one big milestone that we're working towards but it's not the last one it's not something that you know this is where we reach the final uh this is one big uh commercially viable milestone that we have is the um uh, is the small launch vehicle that have uh, and I explain what it means uh, that has a price point the same as the Falcon 9 rocket. Uh, the issue on the market right now, right, is that uh, 50 years ago the average satellite would weigh 15 tons, and the average size of the rocket that would would the payload capacity of the average rocket would be around 50 tons. So it was really good match. The rockets were built for something that we actually needed to launch. But the issue now is that most of the satellites are much, much smaller. The average si uh, size of a satellite is somewhere between 100 kilograms up to 300 kilograms. But the most efficient rockets are still the rockets that weigh, uh, that have, have have a capacity of 15, 20 tons and more. You know, uh, Starship is being built by uh, SpaceX that has a capacity of 100 tons. Uh, and the issue there is, uh, to launch this rocket with those, you know, average size satellites, you need to put 
dozens of them or uh, in some cases hundreds of them on every launch which is an additional uh complex task which is solved now like uh people do that but it's still every time it it it, it uh rises your time to the orbit you need to wait for longer uh you need to get much more uh tests for your satellite for your payload before you actually can put it on the rocket it, it just extends your uh timelines makes the entire task more complex uh and but the issue is when the small rockets exist but they're just so much more expensive uh and i'm, I'm talking five six times more expensive per kilogram than launching something on it heavy launch vehicle. Uh, and for us, what we have uh, is we have the technology that will allow us to build a small vehicle uh, that can carry 300, 400, 500 kilogram satellites on dedicated launches. So without sharing it with 100 other satellites, but have a price per kilogram uh, similar to a heavy launch vehicle like a Falcon 9 or uh, uh, some other you know, less known vehicles. And this is something that will bring a lot of change to the market where um, some business models didn't work because uh, you couldn't go to very unique orbits because most of those big rockets go to very uh, specific and usual orbits and uh, you didn't really get a chance to choose so uh, you know for some businesses they need very unique orbits. They, they couldn't reach for a price that, that, that they would want to. For some, you know, some uh, they do, didn't want to wait for a year and a half to launch their satellite because they can make it now in five, six months. Uh, there are a lot of kind of different uh, small things that uh, clients had to accept in this market uh, just because the price of dedicated launch was so much more. So, and it was pretty much prohibitive for some of the businesses. Uh, and having that access to the same, to this uh, dedicated launch uh, at the same price point, uh, this is what will influence the market a lot and allow a lot more businesses to enter. But long term, if we're looking, you know, over the decades, uh, uh, the technology that we're to develop is at the core. Uh, it can produce more energy per kilogram of fuel, which means you know just cheaper launch because you can just store more energy in the same size of the rocket. Uh, long term, we can see this uh, influencing the entire launch market and potentially uh, competing with the uh, technology that is currently used in Falcon 9 and and, uh, and Electron uh, by um, Electron rockets and so on. So Lisa, with a company like that, uh, with such uh, you know innovation and and uh, you know high high tech uh, approach, you probably have a lot of uh, IP management uh, issues and and strategy. Can can you define that for us? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, we really have unique technologies. Yeah, we have uh, we have to protect it strongly, and uh, you know currently. You know, we are answering the question, have other companies tried to copy our technology? Uh, currently, we're not aware of any attempts to, to steal our technology. Yeah, but at least we are doing everything to prevent this from happening. But uh, basically, ownership of technologies is a controversial question in the current market. And once we started investigating this question from the beginning, we conducted a deep research patents market and found an appropriate ownership engineering strategy we should follow to, to succeed and uh, minimize the chances of breaching by, by sharp competitors, for instance. Yeah. So on the one side, we see 
um, big profiting companies successfully use their own product, but they don't have any patents at all. Uh, they kind of follow uh, tolerating theft strategy. Yeah, when when you're not aggressively defending your legal rights, but you concentrate on uh, keeping it in strong security system inside of your company, and sometimes even use these as an opportunity to gain revenue and get other benefits because of a breach. Uh, so now, uh, not patenting uh, your legal rights may even be a chance to. Uh, to find uh, novel ways to engineer ownership and still uh, gain a competitive edge on the market. Yeah, and that's why some businesses today decline ownership, even when um, the law makes protection available. And because ownership law is usually less complete than than people assume, uh, unfortunately. And uh, for instance, I can't mention. Elon's, uh, Elon Musk's reply about patenting SpaceX. Yeah, officially they uh, forego patents. And uh, once he said that uh, they are primary long-term competition is in China. And if they published patents, uh, their Chinese would just use them as a recipe book. Yeah, and of course, we, we took it into consideration in our strategy as well. Uh, but on the other side, um, some investors uh, still may hesitate to invest when the ownership environment for a product is unsettled. And many, um, many assume a clear ownership rules and registered patents are uh, a background, a vital point for entering markets, especially uh, the space market. And um, so, yeah, and, and of course, uh, talking about protecting your legal technology, uh, you cannot skip an internal security system yeah, in, in your company contained with uh, different tools uh, to keep your valuable confidential information in safety. And that's that was actually barely yeah, the first step we made since uh, Promine was established. And um, yeah, maybe that's it. To summarize my thoughts uh, during creative, uh, creating our uh, own ownership engineering uh, strategy, we tended to, um, to take into account relevant market rules, investors' requirements, and of course, uh, internal, internal and international law uh, to, find, to find the golden mean and avoid any breaches by, by our competitors. Yeah, I guess at, at that level of of uh, you know competition, the the problem isn't just um, you know commercial enterprises, but rather uh, state entities, right? If if you're thinking about the you know the the space shuttle um, blueprints being stolen allegedly, right, by hackers from uh, yeah you know from Asia, <laughs> so um, yeah, that's that's not something you can you can stop by the legal system right right yeah but uh is licensing something that um that's possible for uh, at least in the let's say the west right if uh you know if if you have legal patents on on a launch system right can uh some like a company like um uh, you know, SpaceX or, or or an agency like NASA, do they will they license uh, technologies from other companies, or they, they can just take them? I guess in the in the case of like NASA or not. 
Uh, actually, I'm not sure about NASA. I guess that uh, uh, they are more likely to um, to unite, you know, both of these ways. I mean, licensing, yeah, patenting, and of course, keeping uh, the main, you know, the core of uh, confidential information inside in their company, in their organization. Got you. And uh, Misha, can can you tell us uh, about the current? Uh, you know, stage of, of, of the company, the progression. I've saw I've saw you've uh, raised money and also got uh backing from, from Google. So if, if you can tell us more about that side of, of the business and, and and then tell us about you know in terms of uh, launches and, and tests, like mm-hmm. where are you on the on the physical side of things? Yeah, well, what we what have we actually done? Not just our vision, right? Uh, so uh, we started the company uh, with uh, my co-founder, Professor Vitaly Emis, two years ago, just a bit more than two years ago. Uh, and that stage, well, pretty much only had his research that he was working uh, for uh, that he was working on for more than twenty years at that point. And over the last two years, so we raised money from. Uh, through equity uh, investments and through grants. Uh, and so we took it from this kind of, you know, very interesting, but uh, also risky research into the actual real real world environment. We tested the uh, uh, the technology and now we are uh, testing the engine in our R&D facilities in Dnipro, Ukraine. Uh, we have uh, tested kind of the miniaturized version of the engine, now the bigger version. We're actually preparing to do the next test in the next uh, couple of weeks um, with full-on engine, um, with uh, full uh, process of gasification and combustion working. So the technology uh, that uh, we took uh, in when we started already got from the research into the actual working engine pro- prototype of the engine in our laboratory in uh, in Dnipro. And uh, now we're preparing to uh, do a proof of concept uh, like suborbital launch. Uh, because this technology has never flown before, this is not, again, we don't have the legacy of 70 years of rocketry behind this specific tech. Uh, we go in kind of small, in smaller uh, steps. And the next step for us is do a 100 meter suborbital launch, basically just seeing the rocket lift off and fall back to Earth uh, and seeing if there are any issues with vibration, with like heat exchange and so on. Um, and this is our goal. Uh, this is our next kind of big goal. And after that, uh, with iterations, we'll go to 40 kilometers, 100 kilometers, and then uh, slowly get into the uh, lower Earth orbit after that in the next couple of years. I see. And um, the launch of uh, the NFTs, right? Your your cooperation with uh, Meta History, the you know the war museum in, in Ukraine is is planned for twenty twenty five. So yeah, uh, we currently uh, the, the timelines that we discussed uh, we discussed are for twenty twenty five. That's where we kind of is the earliest uh, time we expect to potentially reach the orbit. Uh, obviously, it depends on a lot of kind of factoring in. The contract uh, is not uh, limited. If we, as a company, will have to postpone the launch to, for example, 2026, uh, we'll still be uh, launching uh, with Meta History 
because uh, you know we are uh, at the core we Ukrainian company. While we not on we operate not only in Ukraine, we have uh, representation in in other uh, countries. Uh, at the core, we Ukrainian company is really important for us to uh, that we can become part of this project that already done a lot of good for uh, the current uh, Russia's war on Ukraine. Uh, they collect a lot of money, and you know when we uh, connected with them, and they said they want to memorial, um, you know, kind of. Uh, put this they had this idea of kind of an infinite uh timeless library and we said oh this is actually a really good uh thing how we can bring more attention to this actually having a uh a, a library uh um, um storage with uh, all of your information launched on the satellite to the lower uh, lower orbit uh kind of commemorating and uh, ho hopefully of course and uh, i believe strongly by the time we do the launch uh, the war will already be finished russia will be no more uh and uh we'll be able to actually uh you know the, that that library is, will be kind of final um a final story of uh this entire war uh going to space Yep. And and how how does the situation right now is, you know, for a company to operate in Ukraine, especially something that would require, um, you know, um, how do I call it, like aerospace um, approval and stuff like that. Obviously, that's not something that uh, is easy to gain even at times of, of peace, you know, in, in most countries. So how, how does that work in terms of you know, licensing uh, or, you know, getting approved for, you know, launching stuff into space? I mean, one one important thing we're not yet launching, that's that makes it a bit easier for us to operate in Ukraine. Um, it's it's a combination of, of a couple of things. One is we have our own premises uh, that we keep, uh, you know, uh, going back to the uh, uh, answer uh, Lisa gave, we have uh, quite good... Um, uh, information protection in place and you know keeping uh the location of our office uh and our laboratory as secure as possible so as little um is known about where it's actually located uh so we don't get any you know uh guided rocket flying into our premises or anything because you know aerospace rocket during wartime it is uh potentially a viable um thing to blow up um so yeah we keep it uh secure uh we have our own premises where we can actually can uh, we can design uh manufacture parts of the engine uh, and we can test it in our premises we don't need to, to go somewhere in the field at this stage at least we don't need to go somewhere in the field uh or uh to get some additional approvals from the government for example our premises are kind of we have a full cycle of designing manufacturing and testing and validating of our technology uh for for longer term uh when we actually uh need to go and do suborbital launches uh, we have a partnership with spaceport in scotland uh and that's where we uh plan to validate uh, our technology and then our suborbital uh vehicle and launch our suborbital vehicle um and uh, yeah i mean obviously the sooner the sooner uh russia loses the better for us because would be definitely be easier to do business I, I don't say it's easier or as as simple as it was before currently but i think for us uh, the most stressful uh was the first months uh, of the full-scale invasion uh where we were figuring out how we're going to proceed what we're going to do but after that um you know, we were 
just you know discussed it with the team and decided that it's probably the best idea to go back to work uh one is you know uh we want to build the business out and the second uh it, it really keeps people sane was what i think a lot of people uh, uh i don't know understand or don't understand is that uh, a really good way to uh stay sane when you have war raging around you, just keep doing what you've been doing or keep, you know, doing your work, being useful. And uh, so, yeah, we, I think after a month of the full scale, kind of, uh, most of the team went back to work. Uh, we uh, had to lay off some, somebody who wasn't uh, uh, the key to the kind of engineering administrative process, like an office manager, we had to kind of just optimize and become a bit more lean than we, we were before. But if we look into what we've done uh, over the last year, uh, we progressed a lot. Uh, we uh, mm, we got some new engineers. We developed uh, some new subsystems that we uh, didn't have before, um, that we didn't have a year ago, for example. Um, so yeah, uh, one thing I, I, I want to say is that uh, obviously I would want to go much faster and obviously we would want to do much more. And uh, the war did slow us uh, comparably. Uh, we we de definitely didn't move this year uh, as fast as we did before. Uh, but uh, compared to what we thought might happen uh, on 24th of February 2022, uh, and what we actually have done in the last year, I think anybody, um, not only think anybody that you know, all of our partners from around the world that we, uh, you know, our investors, our uh, our um, and a service providers, our future customers, they all were in touch and they were like, are you actually going to survive? Are you actually, you know, in like March 2022, actually going to survive? How, how is it going to go? Like a, a lot of people thought that we probably will have to close down the company and we didn't. We progressed. We, we built out the technology. We, we uh, hired some new engineers. Uh, we got some grants. We got into Texter's program. Uh, you know, we, we got through... A lot of things we uh developed a lot we grew, grew a lot in the last year and uh mm, yeah i think it's a really good kind of uh, it's really good showcase of of uh, of the resilience that we have uh, and the kind of culture we have in, in our team yeah it's pretty incredible that any company can uh, can survive under uh, these conditions and you know let alone uh, uh advance um you mentioned uh you know your clients can, can you tell us more about uh you know if it's possible like who are your clients and uh you know what's what's the process um that you pick them uh lisa if you want to uh, comment on that as well uh yeah maybe misha will cover you know uh more market instruments yeah how I, how we choose it but uh, if we talk about uh, about it from legal perspective uh, of course we also we take the reputation and the policy of safe relations quite seriously uh, so we uh, use uh, we use settled risk assessment in our company uh, we conduct a due diligence due diligence process uh, on a prospective client uh, clients as uh, provide an initial investigation of a business uh, overview and detailed points of the company then of course analysis um, evaluation process and uh, finally reporting uh, to make a final decision. And considering our niche, uh, we uh, also need to check uh, the legitimacy of 
cooperation in terms of space law, yeah, because there are many aspects we should uh, pay attention to, including uh, export control, licensing, yeah, and etc. And these rules are related to to our suppliers uh, suppliers as well, by the way. That's very yeah, interesting. No. Can you give us? Sorry, just can you give us some examples uh, regarding uh, export controls? Like, um, I'm guessing that's certain countries you're not allowed to work with, or is that uh, like individuals? How does that work? Yeah, yeah, there is a massive, you know, a massive regulation uh, between you know our com our country and other countries yeah we should follow uh, there is there are many you know individual acts and laws that we should consider I cannot you know emphasize just the one you know the one uh, main rule you know we should follow it's really it's a scope of many requirements uh, we we should uh, we should consider yeah it's a field where um, you know m most startups say you know you move fast and you break things. But uh, I guess in aerospace, you can't really uh, operate like that. Uh, no, no, of course, of course we can. And uh, of course, since the war yeah, uh, is, is going on in our country, we have, it, it, it's a little bit challenging yeah, for us. But uh, as, as, as Misha mentioned, yeah, sooner or later, yeah, uh, we won. And of course, it will be, it will be easier. And I, I, you know, we have, we have settled uh, rules yeah, for this and we know how it works. So that's why, you know, we will handle it, I, I'm sure. And 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 the clients that you're aiming at are, uh, are those universities or those? Um, I, I'm guessing a, a lot of the focus that you know SpaceX is giving now, at least in in terms of its marketing, is it is its own um, you know orbital internet, right? Um, are are those type of uh, companies type of clients that you're seeing coming coming to you? At at the current stage, I, th I think I'm probably a better person here to answer this question because I'm I'm the one uh, sourcing the customers and 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 getting the deals done. Um, I mean, at this stage, we have like I think six and a half million dollars of pre-orders through letters of interest. And uh, what what's really important for us was at this stage is uh, to get really. Uh, different types of clients we have uh, private uh like unicorn startups uh, startup uh, from europe as the client uh that uh, also uh, uh early on probably going to be our biggest client we have universities as clients we have smaller uh and smaller uh, enterprises that only planning to launch like really small CubeSats. So we did, we early on wanted to really get different types of future clients for the reason that uh, from our perspective at this stage, we also consider them our design partners, meaning that uh, we want our service to be really uh, customer oriented. And for that, we need to continuously talk and discuss uh, um, how, you know, how our services might look, what kind of orbits they might want to go at, what kind of additional requirements we as the manufacturer of the launch vehicle might not know that the uh satellite operators have and um so yeah we have this you know private private enterprises small medium sized enterprises universities we don't yet have any government uh customers uh, but uh, the, the 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 main part here is yet um and um and 
the you know the size of the satellites uh, that we uh, that uh, are represented by those customers range from two kilograms to 400 kilograms, for example. And so it really allows us to understand much better um, what kind of service and what what how we need to build our technology for it into the future in the future to be the, the most fit to service those customers. And and you mentioned the CubeSats. Uh, if you can just uh, explain the term from people that are not mm-hmm. uh, familiar with, and also just because I'm guessing that's what you need for you know for an NFT collection, for example, right? You just yeah. need a basically a way to to communicate and you know like some uh, digital storage, right? But I'll yeah, I'll let yeah. you explain that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for something like this, you don't need uh, a really complex, you know, heavy satellite. Uh, um, the CubeSat is a standard standard of a nano satellite, uh, mostly nano satellites, some micro satellite. What it means, um, we have uh, we have an almost, I wouldn't say it's an official, but it's like a standard uh, terminology in satellite sizes. You have uh, small satellites, medium satellites, uh, micro satellites. Uh, uh, nanosatellites, I also missed mini satellites, but it's not as popular. Microsatellites, mi- uh, nanosatellites. Nanosatellites are between one kilogram and up to 10 kilograms. Uh, micro is 10 kilograms to uh, 100 kilograms approximately. And so uh, CubeSat is a standard uh, um, kind of standard of satellite that allows uh, for a more efficient and standardized approach to building satellites. Most of the uh, CubeSats are between one kilogram. There's also a half a kilogram, like it's a, uh, the standard is described as it's one U, two U, three U, meaning one U is a cube 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters uh, and with the maximum uh, weight of 1.3 kilograms. Uh, and this is a standard that uh, there's a lot of structural parts made in this standard. There are a lot of electronics made for the standard. And so uh, the CubeSats go from one U. They're also, as I said, you know, half U. And also very rarely they're like quarter U, meaning like one quarter of this 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter uh, cube that I described. But they can go up to uh, 18 U. 24 U sometimes like you know this is kind of the uh, upper limit and that standardization allows for much easier um integration when for example they do uh joint uh, ride sharing launches and so CubeSat is just a general uh word for this standard standard unit and, or number of those standard units when i say CubeSat i might mean 1 U CubeSat i might mean uh, 15 U CubeSat 15 is rare but 16 U because you want uh, you want it to be ideally uh, uh, um, without any emptiness aside, for example. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, the CubeSats, apart from getting this standardization, allow you to get a lot of uh, cheaper and more available and more reliable, what's really important in satellites, more reliable uh, electronics, batteries, uh, communication modules, and so on, because uh, you don't need to develop everything um, um, bespoke just for the satellite you can just get an off-the-shell component and get it on your satellite and that component already has flown you know 200 times on different satellites and you, and you know the reliability of that module and uh yeah that's what cubesat is and that what something like meta history's satellite will look like um and uh yeah it will store it will have a digital storage it will have battery it will have a, a communications module 
that will allow it to connect to the ground stations on ours to uh, check that it's uh, everything is uh, working and uh, the storage and actually being able to get the information from the storage uh, once in a while to to get that kind of access to the library. So a, a question just popped into my mind, which I'm not sure if you can answer, but it's just mm -hmm. an interesting uh, thought experiment or trying to, to wrap my head around it. Can we ever have orbital-based um, you know, cloud, cloud services? So the same way that, let's say, you hire... Um, you know, uh, Amazon Web Service to to run your your app. Can you one day have a, a service where satellites are already in orbit, right? And you just um, you know use them to either uh, upload something that you want to be stored off world, like let's say a, a blockchain that you know for some coin that you want to be uncensored by by, by a government on Earth, or whether it's um, you know NFTs for for art that you want to be, um, you know, either it's just to say that it's uh, protected forever in space, or just you know for the, you know for 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 just for having it in space for for the sake of having it in space, right? Um, I th that's the thing. You know, the the part that you mentioned, the storage is more than possible the uh, cloud compute in orbit is inefficient because there are issues with heat transfer it's really hard to radiate uh, heat in space so um it, it wouldn't be the most uh, efficient use uh, of the satellite capacity to put a lot of you know gpus into space and use it as the uh, computing uh, uh satellite that is not it, it is possible, but there, uh, but it would be a really complex task, really expensive task, and there would be literally no reason for you to uh, put com compute into the orbit. But the storage part is more than possible, and I think uh, there's definitely uh, going to be a market for it. There's already a market kind of slowly developing. Uh, I think it's it's yet in uh, for now. It's kind of in the uh, baby stage. It's not yet matured enough to actually you know be a separate segment uh but yeah it's there's no issues with with having uh storage in space uh, uh most likely and uh, not most likely but definitely it would be a solid state drive uh, uh storage um, that would have um, a communication model with, with earth and then whatever you want to run if it's blockchain or is it just usual storage um you could more than do it uh, at in orbit, or it really depends on of, and in the amount. If we're talking about you know thousands of of, of terabytes, uh, that's a question, uh, uh, or you know millions of terabytes. But if we're talking about uh, dozens of terabytes, that is definitely something that is uh, uh, that is possible. Uh, even thousands is is just the question of you know the the more the harder the more expensive, and then the question is how much you actually need. Do you need that you know store thousands of terabytes in orbit, or is it you know uh, how how, my, how big is uh, uh, Bitcoin block, blockchain now? Is it like uh, more than hundred gigabytes or a couple hundred gigabytes at this point? I'm, I'm, I'm I might not have it right on top of my head. Yeah, I, I don't remember the exact figure on top of my head yeah. right now, but uh, around I would say like half a terabyte. That's the uh, maximum that I, I okay. that I, half, I would half, imagine like, right now. Yeah, mm -hmm. like half a terabyte. Right, that is definitely something that is more than possible uh, to store uh, and up, 
updates uh, quite regularly in orbit. Uh, and so, yeah, if, if there are clients like that that want to uh, partner with us, definitely an interesting, uh, an interesting kind of niche that can be addressed. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure in the future, uh, th- those sort of things will be a, a possibility. And, uh, you know, we've heard people in the past talking about like storing the blockchain in space. But I, I think, you know, once it's, uh, it's cheap enough, right, it would be interesting to have um, not a AWS, but, you know, just a, a Google Cloud or, or, or OneDrive or all these, you know, um, you know, these, these uh, Dropbox and stuff like that, they have like a space box where you can just uh, upload your stuff to space and uh, have it stored there forever. Be a very interesting concept. I agree. I agree. Okay, so I, w- I want to thank you so much, Misha and, and, and Lisa. I know you have to get going. Thank you for taking the time and uh, coming here to talk to us about it. And, uh, you know, good luck with the... Uh, with everything and and with the launch of the NFTs in uh, 2025. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Bitcoin.com news podcast. Follow us for more interviews with the most interesting leaders, founders, and investors in the fields of cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, NFTs, and the metaverse.